think many of us have had the experience of being in school and studying a certain topic for several months. And after studying whatever topic that is, history, math, literature, science, uh, the teacher would then give a, a final review before the test, covering you know, key principles of what you were supposed to have learned all those months uh, you were sitting there dozing off. And, and by reviewing these key principles, the hope of the teacher in doing this was, of course, so that you wouldn't fail the test, uh, but that you would remember the key principles you were supposed to learn and apply to that test. And in a similar way here, Zechariah, as the teacher, has covered several topics in the form of eight visions uh, that we've been covering for the past few months. And so it's here then in chapter 7 and 8 that really serve as a, a key review, a key reminder of the things that we are to learn and apply to the test of our life. So this brings us to Zechariah 7 and 8. And again, this is a review and a reminder of how we are to respond to what we've seen really in the visions, visions 1 through 8. So what is it that we are to have learned and what is it that we are to do in response to what we have learned? We are to do at least three things. Recalibrate our priorities to God's, remember his promises to us, and rejoice in the gathering of all. So we began then by looking at the need to first recalibrate our priorities to God's priorities. As we come to chapter 7 then, we enter the fourth year of King Darius. And this is nearly two years after Zechariah's visions, and we are now facing the aftermath of what's taken place. It's here in this next scene that we are told that some Israelites from Bethel send a delegation of their people to inquire of the Lord about a question that they now have. And so they come to the nearly completed temple where the priests are, and they ask Zechariah their question. Should we mourn and should we fast in the fifth month as we have done these many years? Now, the reason that they had been fasting and mourning was because it memorialized the destruction of King Solomon's temple. When King Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed that temple, they began to fast and mourn in the fifth month all these years in exile. But now that the second temple is nearly complete, they're wondering, you know, can we stop fasting? Can we stop mourning? Because it seems like the Lord's restored to us what we've lost. So do we need to mourn? Do we need to fast? Since the Lord has turned to us with mercy in this temple. And so this is the background then to the question. And from all appearances, this question seems reasonable, right? I mean, God is restoring what they lost, and do we really need to mourn and fast anymore? But it's at this point that the word of God comes to Zechariah. And instead of answering their question like we expect, what does he do? He asks three heart-penetrating questions of his own. And these three questions then really cut to the heart of the motivation behind all of their fasting for all of these years. When you fasted and when you lamented, did you really fast for me? 
And when you eat and drink, don't you eat and drink simply for yourselves? And aren't these the words that the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets to the, your ancestors? So as we look at these three questions then, we realize that the first one deals with whether or not the people of Israel were truly fasting for God or themselves. When they fasted in 70 years in exile or so, did they really do it for God? And the answer heavily implied here is, is no. They didn't actually do it for God. They did it for themselves. They did it for appearance sake, as other texts tell us. They did it to look good in the eyes of others around them. They did it for the appearance of holiness without any true regard for God himself. And they did this act hypocritically as they ignored what God truly wanted for his holy people. The second question then drives this point further. When you eat and drink, don't you eat and drink simply for yourselves? And much like the fasting was for themselves, so their feasting wasn't really for God. It was for themselves. And so all these ritualistic practices that they put in place was really being done to make themselves feel better about the way things are. And so while their outward actions had the appearance of godliness and of holiness, they were really missing what God truly wanted for his people. Because as the third question gets at, they were ignoring what truly mattered to God just as their ancestors before them did. And so the basic idea of what is being said in these three questions is this. Fasting is pointless and irrelevant if you are not going to obey me in the areas that matter to me. Or as God would say through the prophet Samuel to Saul, I desire obedience and not sacrifice. So these three questions then work together to reveal what truly matters to God. It reveals the heart of God and what he cares most deeply about so that we don't miss it. And so what is it that he cares about? Verses 8 through 10 then tell us what he really cares about. He says, make fair decisions. Show faithful love and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the resident alien, or the poor. And do not plot evil in your heart against one another. And the basic idea of what he's saying here again is, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself and be just in your dealings with all people. This is what matters to God, not fasting. So it's not about fasting that God's people were to care most about. I mean, they had sent a delegation to find an answer to this question. And Zechariah saying, this doesn't matter. What matters most to God is loving people and being just in all your dealings. God cares so deeply about this that his words here come with a warning then, don't they? Look at verses 11 through 14. If we ignore God's priorities here for us, what really matters to him, his judgment will befall them just as it did their ancestors prior to them. Because when God called Israel to repent of their lack of love for their neighbor, to repent of their abusing and ignoring the vulnerable, and when he called them to repent of their wickedness, 
we read that they ignored God completely. They closed their ears. They hardened their hearts toward God's word. Because they ignored God's calling to them, he ignored their calling out to him for help. And he instead scattered them to the four winds in his righteous anger and judgment. And so the warning here is clear for all of us here this morning. If we don't hear God's word here, he will not hear us. And if we harden our hearts in sin, we risk severe judgment. And so we are to learn from Israel's mistakes. And as Hebrews 3.15 encourages us, the church, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. Instead, take God's word to heart here and let it recalibrate your priorities according to God's heart in the text before us. So this leads us then to two ways we must respond here this morning. First, we must respond by repenting of false markers of holiness that we are trusting in. Because like the Israelites, we can fall into the trap of finding our our holiness, our standing before God, that we're cool with him, uh, by, by stupid things like fasting here without true obedience. We can place our hope like the Pharisees did in their man-made traditions and in their own commandments over what God truly desires of us. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning, what false markers of holiness are we trusting in and wrongly placing our confidence in rather than what God wants us to do? Are you perhaps trusting in the fact that you don't say certain bad words while at the same time cutting your brothers or sisters down with sarcasm or demeaning speech? Are you trusting in your regular attendance of church on Sundays, while at the same time ignoring God and your your fellow neighbor the rest of the week? Are you trusting in the fact that you tithe faithfully to a church, but then you will not give of yourself to your neighbors, your coworkers, or your friends who are in dire need? All of us at times miss what matters most to God because we place our confidence in things that matter much to us, but little to God. And so we mistake our sacrifices and, and, and our preferences for being God's when they are really more or less just about us. So when these things are revealed to us, as God calls Israel here, so we must repent and not harden our heart toward God We must not cling to false markers of holiness while excusing what God truly desires of his people, the church. So so don't mishear me here this morning. By all means, fast. By all means, tithe. Attend church. Use appropriate speech. But never let these things excuse you of doing what God wants most. And this leads us again to the second way we must respond, and that is by loving our neighbors as ourselves. So is our priority, as we look inward for a moment, is our priority truly to love people made in the image of God, people whom Jesus died to save and redeem? 
Are we oriented toward helping the vulnerable and the helpless? Are we standing up for those who are unable to stand up for themselves? While we are to love all people as ourselves, look with me again at this text. What's highlighted is the widows, the orphans, the foreigners, and the poor who are especially highlighted. And they are highlighted because these people were the ones who were the most vulnerable in that society. And so God's people, us, are especially to be marked, of course, by love for all, but especially love for these vulnerable groups of people, those who could be easily taken advantage of and abused. And so we as the church must care especially for the vulnerable, even as God highlights here. And so for those of you here this morning who work with vulnerable groups of people on the regular, whether children, the mentally ill, the elderly, immigrants, the poor, know from this this text here this morning that your efforts are not in vain in the eyes of God. You are doing the Lord's work. And by loving the vulnerable, you are loving God. Because as Jesus would say in Matthew 25, 40, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So while all of us at times devote ourselves to endless energies towards people that are in need, don't view it as in vain. Know that you are pleasing God's heart. You are bringing delight to the one who made you and the one who made him. So we as a church then must strive to be a place that loves our neighbor and especially the vulnerable. And of course, as the church, we try to do this in a variety of ways, don't we? We try to do this by, of course, caring for our children who are in nursery, in Bible class, each and every Sunday. We volunteer for that. We try to improve each and every day our child protection policy in this church that we have in place to protect our vulnerable children. We do our best to accommodate those with special needs. And in our recent support of Amnion Center, we help those vulnerable mothers and those who do not have a voice to protect themselves. And so our desire as a church then is to continue to be a place where it is known that we care about vulnerable people, all people, but especially those who are vulnerable both in word and in action. So this is the orientation we must continue to strive for and calibrate ourselves toward the heart of God revealed here in this text. As we move into chapter 8 then, we find what we as God's people then must remember. As we've gone through these eight visions, here's what we must remember again. We must remember his many promises to us. And the first promise is of God's deep, undying love and concern for us. This love and concern is really demonstrated for us by his extreme jealousy for his people. And because God loves you, he is jealous for you. And unlike our jealousy, which is, of course, petty and sinful, God's extreme jealousy here is ultimately for our good. It draws us to himself. And in drawing us to himself, we find our ultimate good. 
But God's extreme jealousy here in this text also leads him to protect us. And in the case it is here, it leads him to return with great wrath, as we read, of those who oppress his people and mistreat them. God's jealousy leads him to protect his people when they are mistreated, and he sees it. So this wrath here, when he's coming with great wrath, this isn't being directed at his people. It's being directed at those people who oppress his people. And so just as a husband's righteous jealousy works to protect his wife from those who would take advantage of her or abuse her, so God in his deep love for us works to protect us and works to even avenge us. So in recognition, find comfort in God's great jealous love for you here this morning. He is passionately committed in his relationship to you, and he proved it in Jesus Christ. He desires that we be close to him and that we know him fully and completely. And so let this just be a reminder once more here this morning, if you're not already doing so, engage yourself in relationship to the God who loves you more than you could ever imagine. Second, then, we are to remember the promise of God's return. It's here in verse 3 that God promises, again, to return to his people and dwell with them. This has been repeated several times already in the first chapter, but God states it here again. And with this promise of God's return comes several other promises. We find that in his return to his people, that they would begin to emulate his likeness. They would be transformed to be like God. And now the city of Jerusalem here is the faithful city or the faithful people of God. Everything God touches will become holy and will be transformed. Second, in God's return, we are given a picture of God bringing immense peace and security. And notice here again, it's peace and security given to the vulnerable. As both the elderly and the children, the most vulnerable in that society, are now playing on the streets. Now, I think we get this today. Streets are dangerous. You have cars rolling by. You don't let your kids just play on them. They get hit. They die. Streets were very dangerous in the cities as well. And you didn't just let kids play on them or the elderly walk around because you get hit by a car or soldiers would run you over. Uh, the carts, the horse is not a car, but you get what I'm saying. So what he's saying here is that these streets, which are formerly just very dangerous place to be, they're going to be at peace, even as the most vulnerable are able then to play on them together with the elderly. So it's here then that they are able to dwell securely as God himself returns to care for these people. Now for the Israelites here, this would have been especially hard to believe. Because again, put your, 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 yourself in their shoes for a moment. They had just gone through extreme devastation. They still had enemies all around them. There was dangers on every side of them. And so it was hard for them to believe such promises. Like, can this really, really happen? And perhaps even this morning, you might feel a little bit of the same way. Will I ever truly have peace and security? But God brings their attention in ours from their sorrows and their woes back to himself. 
And he says, look to me and remember who I am. Though it may seem impossible, is it impossible for me? Look to me. Don't look to your circumstances. Look to me because I will certainly bring this peace and security at my return. So he calls us to look to him in his return. And then with this promise, he would then third also certainly save them from the east and the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem, and they will be my people, and I will be their faithful and righteous God. And so in this promise that we are to remember, we see that in his return, he will transform his people. He will bring peace and security at his return, and he will rescue them. And so we, like Israel, then are to remember this, not forgetting it, but remember it each and every day and find our hope not in ourselves or our situations, but our God who has promised to make this so, for nothing is impossible with him. We are then finally called to look to the promise of God's favor here in 9 through 17. God first reminds his people of how they were before God intervened in their lives. Before God acted, Israel had no animals, no money. They were poor and destitute. They didn't have any safety. They were just a pile of waste by the side of the road. But now that God is for them and not against them, the vine would bear fruit, and the sky would pour rain upon their crops. God would give his blessings to his people as an inheritance. No longer would Israel be a curse to the nations as they were before, but they would be a blessing to all people, just as God promised to Abraham that through his offspring, the blessings would come to the nations. And so because of this promise, his people could go forward confidently. The Israelites could know that God was favorable toward them. He was for them. And in light of this, they could continue forward with the temple project. And most importantly, they could obey God confidently in light of these promises. No longer did they need to live in fear or disobedience, for God is with them and for them, and so he is for us today. As we think of these promises here then, they really point us then to Jesus Christ. We know this. It points us to the promise of the Messiah, Jesus because we recognize that God has returned to us in Jesus. And in Jesus' return, we see God's perfect love and deep concern for his people. He looks on the poor and the needy with compassion and as a, as a sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus fulfills the promise of turning us into his likeness, of people who serve even as he served who are faithful even as he was faithful to us, who are gentle and kind toward the vulnerable, even the children, the sick, and the needy. Jesus himself, in his coming, brings peace and security to all, and he specially provides it to the needy, the helpless, the children. He brings security and peace to the people on the streets, and then just as God tells us that he will, at his return, save people from the east and the west, so we see Jesus here, who is saving people from all ends of the earth today, 
who is drawing the scattered sheep back to himself. And then just as God tells his people in this passage not to be afraid because he will return, so Jesus tells his disciples on a fishing boat caught in the middle of a storm, do not be afraid, for I am with you. And Jesus would prove that he is for us again and again as he faced the storm of God's wrath on the cross for all of us. So in Jesus, we see all of these promises coming to fruition. And in light of what Christ has done, we can, as the text calls us here, be banished of fear and live for Jesus who has conquered in our place. And so our calling this morning as we often face fears and struggles all around us is to remember the promises of what God has given to us and to remember Jesus the center of all of them. So an application of this text, if you are not doing so already, meditate, memorize these precious promises of God's love for you, of God's return and all that he will do at his second coming in Christ. Remind yourself that God is for you and not against you. Memorize these passages because it will be the fuel that drives you through the storms of unexpected life circumstances. Memorize passages that speak of the amazing forgiveness that is ours in Christ. Memorize passages that speak of God being a God of all comfort. Dwell on passages that speak of our God never leaving us or forsaking us. And memorize passages that speak of God wiping away every tear one day from our eyes at his return. In these ways, as the church, we must dwell on the promises of God and memorize such promises. By doing so, we will find our fear driven out and renewed strength to obey today as we dwell on them. As we come then to the final point, we are to respond by rejoicing in the gathering of all. We remember that chapter 7, again, opened with the question of fasting, right? Should we fast or shouldn't we? And here it's at the end of chapter 8 that Zechariah finally comes back to that initial question. Instead of fasting, God declares these times would be turned into joyous occasions. God's people would rejoice and celebrate rather than mourn and fast as they used to do. Why? Because God is returning to his people and he is gathering them all to himself. And so these once sorrowful moments in their history where they mourned and fast, were now being transformed into occasions of rejoicing and gladness. God is reversing what took place to them. He is gathering them to himself. He is returning to them. And so because of this, they were to rejoice. And in seeing this call, we are reminded then of another account in the New Testament where fasting is really turned into feasting. This account is found in Matthew 9, 14, and 15. And it's here where John's disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, why don't your disciples fast like ours do or the Pharisees do? Why don't your disciples fast? And how does Jesus respond? He responds by saying, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? 
And in saying this, I think Jesus was in many ways highlighting this passage here. How can the wedding guests be sad when God has returned to them in Jesus? How can they be sad when God is gathering his people to himself and his Messiah? You can't. Instead of fasting, the occasion calls for a time of feasting and of celebration. For God has returned to his people and he is gathering them to himself. And so this fasting turned into feasting points us forward to Jesus and his ministry. And I think it also points us then, really, to the Lord's Supper that we partake in each and every Sunday. For the Lord's Supper here before us is in a a way a reminder of that feast that we will all one day share in when Christ returns. And it's in this feasting together that we remember Christ and his inevitable return to us. And it's in the Lord's Supper we see that he is gathering us together as one. So we celebrate this joyous occasion each and every Sunday through the Lord's Supper to remind ourselves that he is gathering his sheep from all nations and he will inevitably return. The final part of this vision then prophesies of a day where all the nations will flock to Israel and grab hold of the Jewish people because they have heard that God is with them. And so I believe this day has come to pass because Jesus, born and raised a Jew, has revealed God to the nations from Jerusalem and being revealed as the resurrected Lord over death. So now the nations, even ourselves here this morning, have flocked to the God of Israel. We flock to Jesus Christ who was crucified and who was raised to life. And we rejoice in him and all that he's doing here today. So in reflection of this text here, may we as God's people respond rightly. May we recalibrate our hearts to God's priorities. May we remember his precious promises. And may we rejoice in his gathering of all nations to himself. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you incredibly thankful for Jesus Christ. And so may we as your people have the heart of Christ for all people. May we remember all that you have accomplished for us and so in turn pour out your immeasurable love to us, to others. May we show the heart of God in all of our words, actions, and deeds. May we not live hypocritically focusing on those things which do not matter to you, but may we see your heart and so love our neighbor as ourselves. Love those who are vulnerable. Love those, Lord, who are helpless, for such were we. Help us, Lord, to be the kind of church that takes your word seriously here. And instead of hardening our hearts toward your word, may we respond by being transformed by it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.